Hello everyone and welcome to this Christmas special of the EdTech podcast. In the spirit of good cheer, we have a giveaway this week. Past guest and listener Richard Taylor has a couple of hundred nanoseconds, which could be a great addition to a science fair, classroom or board meeting to get minds whirring. What's a nanosecond, I hear you ask? Well, listen back to episode 53 with Richard Taylor and you'll find out. Or Richard's email summarises as the following. These are fancy cloth-coated bits of wire, the same length as it takes light to travel in a nanosecond. The idea is a copy of what Rear Admiral Grace Hopper, my tech edtech hero, used to use to demonstrate to US Defence Department officials why she needed the funding for her projects. Science tech teachers used to love them, but these were made and donated by a very cool UK company who make custom lights and such. So, if you want those nanoseconds plus a bag of retro edtech event t-shirts for your team, class or otherwise, please email in at theedtechpodcast at gmail.com and we'll get those posted out to you. And thank you and shout out to Richard for thinking of us. What's next? This week's episode is in conversation with Vikas Pota, man of myriad talents, including leading the Global Education Skills Forum, the Next Billion Prize and now Tomorrow Digital. To break all those parts down and to find out what they mean for education and edtech, let's kick off. P.S. Keep your ears open in this episode for the invitation for our listeners to join the forum and how. Here's Vikas explaining the GESF event. Um, you know, the Global Education Skills Forum next year is from the 22nd to the 24th of March. And we're asking a central question, which is, who is changing the world? Um, the reason we ask this is because the traditional um, ways in which change occurs is changing massively. And so um, it used to be the case that, you know, the head of state or a government affects change. Actually, we see so much change happening from all over the place. So what we want to do is actually bring in some of these change makers who may be in different sectors to come and speak about their, their own personal journeys, tell us about what strategies and what tactics they're deploying so that those of us in the education sector can perhaps learn and understand as to how we, um, how we do the same in education. There's long been a discussion around, you know, and I'm sure we're all fed up about the school of the future and how we disrupt education Actually, um, you know, what we ought to do is understand how others have done it in their own sectors and think about, well, how do we affect that change? And as educators, as policymakers, as investors, as entrepreneurs, um, we would do well in listening to how other people have approached it. So, for example, like, you know, we have some prolific people who um, in the environmental conservation space, uh, climate change space, who have effected massive change coming. You know, we have people from the tech sector who have effected massive change. And when you think about how they've achieved it, um, and when you hear their stories, I think it inspires a greater conversation. But at GSF this year, um, or next year rather, um, unlike this year, we have a, a really great ed tech um, strand of programming where you not only have the next billion ed tech prize, um, but you also have great content by way of panels, discussions, workshops that bring together the world and some of the most incredible uh, innovators together to address the challenges that I speak about. And I think that's going to be a fantastic, uh, fantastic output from 
from the conference. So anyone who wishes to join us who's listening to your podcast uh, would be most welcome if they can if they can go onto the website, which is www.educationandskillsforum.org, and um, and, um, and and fill in a form um, and say that you heard this podcast, and um, and I'll make sure that they're admitted to the conference. As Vikas explained, part of the GESF is the next billion prize. I found the entrance extremely high quality when I listened in to the prize pitches in March in Dubai. In this episode, you'll hear how UK edtech and language company Chatterbox won the prize and why. But before all that, I had the chance to catch up with TechCrunch editor Mike Butcher at the end of year's session to work through the nominees. So I'm absolutely delighted to finally be here with Mike Butcher from TechCrunch. Welcome. Hello. So, Mike, you've been essentially sort of moderating and judging the next billion at the Global Education Skills Forum. So can you tell us a little bit about what you've seen over the last couple of days and yeah, how that fits into the wider tech sector that you have a great view of? Thanks. Well, yes, we saw about 42 companies pitch, everything ranging from people literally putting in physical centers in Pakistan to all the way up to you know, mentors from, you know, the biggest universities mentoring people from uh, emerging markets. And I think, I guess, some a couple of my takeaways so far have been that, you know, it's been fascinating to see EdTech a little bit develop away from uh, some of the very kind of rote or uh, rather unimaginative takes on, on what it could do a few years ago to being a lot more creative there's a lot of early stage companies who are really honing in on some specific issues. And it's partly to do with the fact that people came around to the idea of much more user-centered design and getting some better data out of some of the projects that they were doing. And you can just start, you can sort of see it coming through in the market now. And it's something that, it's an area that I wasn't particularly keeping an eye on a couple of years ago, but just Bruce, to, be, to be brutally honest, Nothing really seemed to have the wow factor, but it's really, really fascinating and instructive to delve back into it and to see some new entrepreneurs come through the system, the ecosystem, and and start to be get a lot more creative. I think. So we've got our six finalists for this mm. as well. You won't so, be you won't be able to skew the the award finalists because this won't go out until afterwards. But oh, do, sure. are there any there that particularly captured your imagination as well? Yeah, well, we had six finalists at this uh, competition: um, Bit, Biz Nation, Chatterbox, Dot Learn, Localized, Learning Machine, and Teach Me Now. And just to to speak to them, I suppose Biz Nation, three young women founders from Latin America, from Colombia scaling a, an education platform that aimed very much at millennials but also aimed at uh, sort of really energizing the idea of entrepreneurship coming on your own entrepreneur skills in that sense kind of like a mini MBA almost like that you would actually turn into an entrepreneur if you if you you know used biz nation and they've really proved the model very well in in Latin America and in Colombia and it's the sort of thing you can see growing internationally. If they, and a bit if they, cheaper than an MBA. Got, yeah, and a bit cheaper than an <laughs> yeah. MBA. And probably worth more, a little bit more worthwhile um, to some extent. And then there was uh, Chatterbox, which has got a fascinating story, has helped uh, refugees scale the ability to teach languages, to teach Arabic, for instance. But also a scalable platform to teach literally the world every other language apart from you know your normal French English German you know Chinese 
but every other language. And that's absolutely fascinating, especially for emerging markets, which was the big theme of this whole competition. I've seen a couple of startups in that space. Um, one that was dedicated to this resurgence of learning, mm. I suppose, languages that are going out of fashion. So whether it's Welsh or others and mar- serving mm. that market, as you just discussed. Yeah. And also, we've had on the podcast before the lack of uh, Arabic language teachers. And I know there was another yeah. startup that was looking at that as well. Yeah, so, um, so, uh, yeah. Sejal was actually aimed yeah. at um, aggregating Arabic contact. Mm. That was uh, one of the companies that pitched. Very interesting company. And absolutely. And what's interesting about it is, is also monetizing the ability to do it even in tiny niches, you mm. know. And that's super, super crucial, but fabulously scalable. And then there was Dot Learn which has got a great backstory of one of the co-founders coming from sub-Saharan Africa, learning online, teaching himself to code, and then literally becoming a co-founder in a new company called DotLearn that was united with an MIT graduate. So literally the emerging world meeting the developed world and actually coming up with what I love to call the literally the Pied Piper pitch, which is being able to shrink the size of learning videos and educational videos to such a small size that it's much more palatable and cheaper to access in emerging markets, which is absolutely crucial. Uh, You know, a lot of this sort of speaks to the problem that was happening a few years ago, which was, you know, everyone was expecting to go onto YouTube and download these hundred megabyte gigabyte videos and learn from that yeah. is extremely expensive especially in emerging markets and um and i think this, this is such a good idea dirt learners definitely come up with a really fascinating proposition it's very interesting because you you are getting more edtech startups now that are you know providing content or doing things on legacy handsets and that kind of thing m schuler is getting a lot of press at the moment in mm-hmm. terms of personalized learning on a on a legacy handset so yeah, yeah. snackable content is a big educational technology trend it's happening in the in the kind of what you might call mainstream the startup space as well mm-hmm. so it's cool to see uh, that happen in this space localized is a company which is effectively using the trojan horse of universities to link up university students with mentors in yeah. developed markets and kind of like the diaspora meets meets uh, the people back home, shall we say. So you're potentially a you know young global leader in your emerging market. Uh, you want to know how somebody else got out there and became like the president in the US or I don't know, whatever it Data else is. Data scientists they're talking about, weren't they? And you wouldn't necessarily say a, that. A, and you want to learn how someone became a, you know successful in, say, the US or Europe or, or Asia or whatever. And you want to learn that and you want to learn it from them. Yeah. And it's very interesting. And you, But this is also a model which is now kind of much more proven. There was many people launching mentoring platforms many years ago. And a lot of those failed because they were one-to-one. Now, this is one-to-many. So literally, you could sit in front of an incredible chief executive or a credible academic or a credible leader in their space and, and be mentored by them back in you know, the, the, you know, their home country, shall we say. So it, that's a fascinating company. Learning Machine. And now here we go. Now this is all blockchain. So yeah, that's your, um, your sweet spot. Blockchain <laughs> is, is a fascinating new area. And um, it's a, a huge amount of hype around blockchain. One of the reasons is that it might well lead to a serverless internet. You could literally run a massive application like Instagram on a blockchain and 
it can scale to billions of users and not require any servers. And that's the, the promise of blockchain. Now, one of the also big, huge strengths of it is being able to register immutable data and documents, documentation. And Learning Machine have come up with a fantastic way of uh, registering and, and you know, putting on the blockchain educational documents. And they've signed all deals already with uh, countries like Malta. And it's an incredibly good idea because you are, for instance, uh, you've been, you're a refugee and you were a professor in a university and now you can't prove who you are and where you got, had your, got your degree because you've lost all your documents. Or, you know, you're in an emerging market and you can't prove that the university, is, you know, your document is, is difficult to prove because the university is hard to reach or whatever. This puts educational documents on the blockchain and for all time and therefore would allow people who don't have access to that kind of scrutiny. In developed worlds, it's easy, you know, just call up Oxford, Oxford or Cambridge or whatever and, and did this person get that degree? Well, Learning Machine will do that for the rest of the world. And that's a really fascinating project. And finally, Teach Me Now. This is kind of like Uber for teachers in the sense that, not that, not that, uh, not that you know, I call Teach Me Now and a, a teacher turns up, but in the, sense, in the sense that, it's the gig economy, the gig economy, but scale to education. So on Teach Me Now, you can say, for instance, say, listen, you know, I know Swazi, right? I'm sitting in Swazi. And I want, does somebody want to learn Swazi? Okay, you know, pay me, uh, pay me. I'll go on to Teach Me Now. I'll build a curriculum. I'll do videos. I'll build source material, all of that stuff. And then I'll set myself up and I'll teach you Swazi from Swaziland, hurrah. And now, even though that's a kind of a, maybe an extreme use case, the point is that anybody on the planet can sit down and teach me now, build a curriculum, become a teacher. Lots of people have tried this before. They've created marketplaces for teachers and you know, do a Skype call with me and I'll teach you something or teach you some mathematics or pay me over PayPal or whatever. But all of that was unstructured. It was you know very informal and it didn't really scale as a real project. Teach Me Now have come up with a very scalable solution. They've built the real fabulous tools that teachers really need to build curricula and to do, do real interaction with students on any subject. And it's a really fascinating, got a lot of potential, Teach Me Now. So those are the six that we picked as finalists. Your memory is impeccable, may I say. <laughs> very impressive. And then if people are, I mean, obviously you're here. If people want to find out more, you're on Twitter, obviously, at uh, Mike you Butcher. Can, you can at Mike Butcher me, okay, if you like. Okay, fantastic. And, uh, well, well, we'll hopefully see, see more EdTech content even on TechCrunch coming up. Yeah, sure. And you need to uh, check out those companies. I think and three of those, by the way, will go on to win the prize, which you'll, I'm sure won't, by the time this podcast is out, you'll know who they are. Yeah. But all of them are very strong. And, and it was quite tough to, to boil that down from 42 companies. But... All of them are extremely strong. And actually, there was a very strong field entirely. So, so I think it's been great also to this conference and the, the Varki Foundation to really go deep into this sector because I think there is a, clearly a sort of a rejuvenation going on in the air tech market. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Mike. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks again, Mike. I really enjoyed our conversation. Now it's time for my extended chat with Vikas about Tomorrow Digital, his new EdTech-focused venture. But before all that, a huge thank you to you, the listeners, for your support in 2018. It's been a challenging year, but through it all, we've had many more episodes, plus insightful trips to Finland and China, a new podcast festival, and a couple more series thrown in. 
I also managed to cycle across France through the mountains and raise over £17,000 as a collective for three important charities. So thank you for letting me off to do that. To anyone who has listened, sponsored, shared or commented in 2018, thank you. And we've got some exciting projects and plans on the go for 2019 and I hope to be able to reveal some of those to you soon. Wherever you're listening in, Merry Christmas from here in the UK. Bye bye. (laughs) Okay, brilliant. Well, I'm delighted to have Vikas Pota, the Group Chief Executive for Tomorrow Digital on the line. So hi, Vikas. Hi, Sophie. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to have you on the show finally. I know we've, um, you know, we've met before and uh, in the meantime, um, sort of Tomorrow Digital has, has really come to life. So it's fantastic to finally get this chance to um, understand a little bit about what you're up to and uh, that going into 2019. Um, for those people listening, they'll probably be familiar with you as the the kind of face of the Global Teacher Prize and the Global Education Skills Forum, um, obviously with Sunny Varkey. So Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your new role at Tomorrow Digital, what it is and how people might also be able to get involved. Sure. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast, uh, which I listen to regularly. And some of the some of the speakers that you have, some of the podcasts that you do have been pretty um, important in my learning journey as well. So thank you for that. Um, you know, prior to telling you what my future role is, maybe I should just tell you a little bit about what I've learned in the past uh, decade or so since I've been in education. So you rightly point out that I used to run something called the Varki Foundation, which is a family foundation focused on education and in particular on uplifting the status of teachers. Um, and through that, we have a number of different things that we've done. Um, one, of the, one of the successes that we've had is the Global Teacher Prize, where we award a million dollars to a teacher every year. And this year, there's a, a great London-based teacher called Andrea Zafiriku that won the prize as an art teacher. But you know, we've had three, uh, she has three predecessors. Um, and so through the prize and through our engagement with the teaching community, what you learn is, um, is, is a number of things. But primarily um, what I find is when I go to education conferences, when I go to education policy discussions, you will have all kinds of people there apart from teachers, which I seem, which seems quite odd actually. And so when I think about that and I think about uh, the status of teachers in particular, um, I think a much better job needs to be done in terms of telling people the story about how teachers are central to any of these education uh, ambitions and goals that we have. And in that context, um, as a foundation head, what I used to do was having to engage with multilaterals, uh, large international NGOs, the UN system. And what you find is the sustainable development goal number four, which is around quality education, that today says we have, you know, over 260 million children still out of school um, and that we need, you know, to achieve SDG number four, we need 69 million new teachers. You know, the thing that I started thinking about was, well, how are we going to achieve that given that in many parts of the world, including the UK, there is a, there's a retention and a recruitment crisis of teachers. Um, how, do we, how do we achieve this? And implicitly, I think we all know that technology has a role to play in bridging that, or bridging some of that at least. But what I found was in that world of, um, in, in the social sector as it were, people weren't, uh, weren't used to thinking about technology um, in any kind of strategic or structured way. They didn't have the vocabulary, they didn't have the language. Um, and actually when they thought about technology, they thought about the big brand names that exist. 
where mm. there's, a, there's so much innovation that's taking place. And it struck me that, um, to be really odd that none of, this, none of these innovators or people who are doing incredible things were ever invited to the discourse. And that's what actually precipitated this move into the private sector and looking, um, looking to unify all of Sanivaki's EdTech investments and putting a strategy around them to say, okay, um, you know, we have a role to play our contri- to contribute to, of course, driving business, but obviously there's a bigger, wider, bigger, higher purpose that we should be aiming for. And that doesn't differ whether you're running a foundation, whether you're running a tech company or you're in a school. We want all children to be learning well and receiving a higher standard of education. So that's roughly what I've learned in the last 10 years. And I'm very excited about what happens in the future. If I understand correctly as well, the last kind of uh, six to nine months has really been sort of you in in sort of research mode so traveling around the world speaking to um those innovators that you described and and some of the sort of supporting structures around them around edtech um and i know that you you have the chance to speak to lots of powerful people in powerful places whether it you know that's in the us or in india or wherever it might be um i wondered you know out of some of those conversations whether there are perhaps well-known figureheads that you've had conversations with about education or ed tech um, that perhaps have been surprising or has given some insight into sure. their opinions on um, education and ed tech? Yeah, so uh, really great question. Um, so when, we, when, I, when I told everyone that I was making this move, uh, what I didn't expect was actually the, the, the flurry of emails saying, oh, we're interested in this discussion because they've never ever spoken to me about tech, um, you know, in, through either their international NGOs, like I said, or through the UN discourse or any of, any of the previous work that I'd done. So I was astounded. So, you know, whether you're a large foundation, whether you're a, a multilateral financing institution, you know, they all seem to be interested, interested in ed tech, as it were, uh, which took me by surprise. I mean, recently you've seen um, some work by the World Bank on this subject, um, you know, there are international NGOs which, like Plan Canada and like the Malala Fund, who are interested in learning technologies. Um, and I didn't realize that there'd be such an appetite for this discussion. So that was really welcoming and gave me a lot of encouragement. The thing that I've learned more so than speaking to um, senior people or influential people or those with a brand, actually, I've spent a lot of time speaking to startup entrepreneurs. I just try to understand, firstly, their language how they think about things. And the things that actually uh, struck me was um, how they seem to, there seems to be an aversion uh, to thinking about education efficacy and education research. And mm-hmm. I know in London we are blessed that we have an institution like the IOE that has this Educate program. Um, but generally speaking, when you speak to startups around the world, when you say to them, what proof do you have of whatever you do working and actually achieving learning gains, um, they come unstuck. And I would say nine out of ten entrepreneurs I've spoken to, um, you know, actually fall away there and then. Um, I understand the challenges of when you're a startup and the costs involved in setting up various processes and thinking about things in a different way to make sure you capture, uh, you know, um, data around learning gains. But the reality is that we need people to start thinking from the get-go about how they bake in an approach that actually demonstrates that what works beyond 
just the anecdotes of a teacher or of a school or of a student that can give us confidence in, in how they're approaching uh, whatever that they're doing. So that's been a really big learning curve for me. It's interesting that you say that about um, efficacy, because I think, as you as you mentioned, um, perhaps in London, it, it's sort of a given, whereas when you travel around the world, um, the conversation seems to be earlier on in terms of thinking about efficacy. I mean, listening to you talk about that, does that suggest that, you know, this is a solution or a or some kind of um, product that Tomorrow Digital might help solve in terms of um, discoverability of uh, edtech products that you know have that efficacy baked in. Sure. So one of the things that I did was uh, we set up something called the Tomorrow Institute, which uh, which looks at how um, the public benefit argument of learning technologies. So organizing many conferences, and you know, in March we have the Global Education and Skills Forum where, you know, Tomorrow Institute is running the EdTech side of things. Mm-hmm. And through these, um, through these mechanisms that are at our disposal, we want to use that to shine a spotlight on what good looks like. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have, for example, the Next Billion EdTech Prize that looks at uh, exactly what I said, but in the developing economies where there's so much activity, whether it's India, Nigeria, Argentina, um, there's a lot of great EdTech entrepreneurs who are doing fascinating things. But the institute as a whole, um, you know, we're, we're, we're in startup phase ourselves. And what we will do is commission research, we will convene, and we will try to make sure that we enlarge the discussion regarding what good edtech should look like. And one of those events you had recently was looking at personalized learning um, and, and had some very impressive researchers along. I wondered if, you know, you could share with our listeners a bit about, um, you know, what some of those researchers are working on and what kind of questions they're pondering when we think about how adaptive or, or personalized learning might develop. Sure. So, you know, uh, like you said earlier that, you know, in the last six months, what I've done is because I don't come from a tech background or a finance background. What, what I've done is I've gone around the world and spoken to uh, friends and new, new peers and colleagues, uh, whether they're in the investing world, whether they're in academia, whether they're in the um, you know, entrepreneurial ecosystem, uh, to understand what, how, how we should be thinking about edtech. Um, there's a great professor actually at, at Harvard, that John Kim, who actually uh, uses a great framework to explain what the benefits of edtech are. Uh, so he, he describes it as, you know, um, edtech is primarily used for three reasons. One is um, to do with uh, productivity in the school or in a classroom. So you have lots and lots of edtech companies looking at that particular challenge. Um, the second one is to do with online learning, which we instinctively understand because that's the world we live in now. And the third one is around personalization, and that's where that's where you see the true benefits of edtech, where you can personalize um, you know, education towards every child, and your, your listeners will understand what personalization is. So we decided to convene a group of, I would say, just under 50 people from around the world, including um, government ministers. So we had ministers from South Africa and from Ghana. We had acad- academics from Stanford, Harvard, Carnegie Mellon, um, Pennsylvania University and elsewhere. And then we had um, a group of startup entrepreneurs and researchers who were working in the field of personalized learning. What I found quite fascinating were two, two discussions. One was, what is the definition um, of personalization? How do you think about that? And the other one was around the ethics of AI and, and, and personalization. And I think those two, just to convene this diverse group of people in a room to have discussions like that, 
I think, adds to the body of knowledge that exists. I don't think we get a conclusion, um, but then, you know, I think it takes a, a great effort in arriving at a conclusion. Mm-hmm. So this is the start of, the start of a journey that will hopefully get us somewhere that we understand a lot better what the actual true potential of personalization is and how we should be thinking about that when it comes to policy, when it comes to funding, when it comes to building technology. I think that's a really good aim and goal for the, for the Tomorrow Institute. It's really interesting when you mentioned the geographies present at the event as well. Um, I, I read a recent article where you mentioned your passion for, you know, Europe being the potential powerhouse of edtech versus perhaps like the US and China. Um, and then, you know, having attended the Next Billion Prize this year in Dubai, it was really refreshing to see that most of the entrants were representative of solving educational problems in emerging economies. So I wondered what, you know, given given that those two you know the comment about Europe and then um, the, the kind of support for um, ed tech and emerging economies how you see the two playing out and what you know what we ex- would expect to see at the next billion prize um, in March as well yeah I'm interested in many parts of the world so it's natural for me to deviate my attention towards other places apart from just London London and the UK where I live um, uh, you know, I think there's a huge amount of innovation that comes from Africa, as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at India and what's happened in the Indian um, technological infrastructure play, I think it's been phenomenal that so many people are now using digital services. Um, and we hear at the conference that I organized, you, you will hear, you know, you, we heard stories about uh, how that has happened and what, what affected that transition and what the success of it has been. And so I think people can take inspiration from these countries which have opportunities to leapfrog mm-hmm. um, more effectively than, than places like here that perhaps have so many legacy systems and ways of doing things. And I think that's really interesting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's I, I, I actually found it you know, very um, refreshing to see uh, a different range of ed tech companies and how they're approaching things. Um, but also, if, you know, it's really solving a problem, um, whereas sometimes here yeah. it feels like, you know, you're you're kind of tweaking bits and bobs. Um, but ultimately, we're, you know, we're obviously very, very lucky to have the educational system that we do, um, albeit it can always be improved. Uh, obvious question. What was your own schooling like? You know, I, I went to a, a local state comprehensive school in northwest London, and I, I had a most fabulous time in terms of mm-hmm. um, I enjoyed the environment, I liked my teachers, um, I had a great peer group. Um, was I academic? Probably no. Uh, and my mother would say that is reflected in my grades. I'm not surprised. <laughs> um, but to be honest, I think, you know, the, the move that we are seeing now where, you know, if, I, if you read Yuval Harari's book, Mm-hmm. whether it's sapiens or any of these, you'll understand that, you know, uh, longevity of our lifespans is something that's happening. You know, we may come to live to 100, 200, uh, 130 years almost. Um, and in that kind of time frame, you know, the way that we, th- th- that, that education is provided to us will, uh, will have to change. You know, there's been a long discussion around lifelong learning. And just imagine if you... If you live to 130, and actually it's only in the first 20 years that you go to university, you go to school, I mean, how odd is that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's a massive transition happening. And I think it's exciting to be involved in that discussion.
And you mentioned Yuval Harari. I mean, one of my favorite questions is to ask guests what their kind of favorite books or impactful books that they're reading at the moment. Um, are there any others that you would share with people, uh, you know, that have resonated with your thinking at the moment? You know, I, I was actually reflecting because we are recording this at Christmas time uh, as to what my favorite um, uh, book of the year has been. And it's nothing to do with text, but it's a book written by uh, a nine-year-old girl called Bana Alabed from Syria, mm. who speaks about um, the plight of children in war zones. And I, I think it's akin to like a modern diary of uh, Anne Frank. Mm. Um, and I'd encourage everyone to read it because I, I found it fascinating and I couldn't put it down. It's a, it's a short book. Uh, she's a nine-year-old girl being so articulate and eloquent. I think gives you a different perspective on what life is like for children uh, in in parts of the world that are that are ravaged by war and conflict. And unfortunately, um, the times that we live in, there's a lot of them. Uh, and hopefully, she will be coming to the Global Education Schools Forum. Just to round off, 2019. So you've got uh, tomorrow digital. Uh, and mm-hmm. the Institute, you've got the Next Billion Prize and, and obviously um, uh, the Global Education Skills Forum. So, you know, how does the year look like for you and, and, and what kind of areas of ed tech are you looking forward to supporting and investing in as well? Sure. So, um, you know, without giving out too much commercially confident um, <laughs> material, um, I would say to you that I've been trying to understand what the investing ecosystem is in a number of different places whether it's South Asia, whether it's Europe, whether it's Latin America, or whether it's Africa. And one of the things that um, I've been trying to understand is the incubator and accelerator space um, in particular. So as an investing strategy, um, is, that, is that a good way to go forward? Um, what I've been um, quite astonished with, actually, is in Europe, there really isn't much activity in that sector. You know, you have a fantastic um, effort in, in Finland um, that I'm aware of. They have a fantastic... Um, incubator accelerator in France um, and in London I, th- I just don't think we've served well whatsoever and so you think okay why is it that these um, these kind of models uh, don't necessarily last long um, especially in the tech sector and what is it that we need to apply uh, to making sure that we strengthen this initiative because that I think will help galvanize an entire ecosystem by making sure that great tech startups have the support, the education, and and the, and the networks that they need to grow, uh, and it's something that we're thinking of. Very interesting, and I, I noticed that um, Bobby Kershen was at your event. I wondered Correct, if yeah. you'd read her article. Of course, and, um, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting. And she, she's been fantastic. Bobby has been very um, generous in terms of her time with us. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and she actually has done a mapping out of so many accelerators and incubators around the world, and we've been talking about well, what do we do? What do we do to support um, uh, you know, this kind of activity around the world? Because I do think that the time has come where we should be thinking about how we support startups more effectively rather than just think about um, putting money into them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have a responsibility not just as an investor, but someone who is deeply rooted in education to do that. Very interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Yeah, I think there's a lot of synergies, actually, of what you can do and how you can learn about these things. So the way that, for example, an Indian entrepreneur will approach uh, their market is obviously going to be very different to how someone in Birmingham approaches theirs. But I think as, um, as, um, as entrepreneurs, they will have learned how to 
tackle challenges which are similar, which is how do you get into schools, how do you work with teachers, how do you think about efficacy, and I think um, having these different uh, perspectives only strengthens knowledge and understanding, which in the end is good for the sector as a whole. So I think that's why uh, this cross-cultural and cross-country kind of um, uh, approach, I think, would be fascinating to have. One of the other things that I've seen is when you speak to an entrepreneur or a VC, mm-hmm. uh, they're focused on, you know, have you grown by 3x or 5x or 10x? That is the that is the jargon and the language and the pattern of discussion. And actually, when I get asked in terms of as an investor, you know, what is it that I'm targeting? I said, well, that 3x, 5x, 10x is fine, and it's important to 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 keep an eye on that. But actually, the huge opportunity that we have is in improving the standards of learning for children everywhere, and that is what actually excites tomorrow digital more mm-hmm. than just the financial return that you can make. And I think it's really important for people like us to actually be be vocal about that because that is a responsibility that we have as, as, as responsible educators and investors. I mean, and, and do, you, do you feel that as part of, of what you just said, that, you know, this idea of who is an educator, obviously there's, the, the, there's an educator in the sense of a deep pedagogical understanding yeah. and training, but there's also this idea that, you know, we are all responsible for our children's learning and upbringing and, um, you know, supporting the next generation. And, you know, that does involve a lot of, a lot of um, different players, doesn't it? Absolutely. And education is a serious responsibility that we have to take um, on a footing that we haven't previously done. I mean, look at all the challenges that this world faces. And, you know, we mentioned the sustainable development goals at the beginning, where there are 17. Actually, we don't believe you need 17, you just need one, <laughs> which is education. If you achieve that, then you'll, you'll achieve so many other things. And that's why we implore government, we implore, you know, investors, we implore startups to think about this from a responsibility um, that we have towards our future generations. It's fine to want to make money, and I think, it's, I think it's a good thing that you build sustainable businesses. But in the end, you have to um, have at the core of what you do, um, you know, the, the, the needs of the student and the learner to make sure that they're doing much better than they could have. So in terms of the next billion prize, where are you with the planning for this or for 2019? Uh, thank you for asking the question. We've just opened the applications process. Uh, online on our website and if you're um, if you're an edtech startup which is pre-series a that is looking at how your product or service actually applies um, to bringing the next billion learners online um, then please do come on board and make sure you fill in the application form and our team will come back to you i'd like to encourage you all um, to to come and visit and participate um, the winner of this year's prize um, is a lady called Marcel who runs a company called Chatterbox. Um, as a result of participating in our conference, she's had follow-on funding. She's had a surge of customers. Um, and the profile that she's gained from whether it's a BBC news, news website, the Times Education Supplement, or any of these uh, standard bearers when it comes to the media has been transformational for her. And um, for that reason, I would say to you that there's a great benefit in coming and not just in participating in the prize, but actually taking part in the process and the event. Well, that is a great way to end uh, today's podcast episode. So uh, thank you so much for your time. Wishing you all a Merry Christmas.
Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for the opportunity. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.